And I caught myself thinking about this, that like when you just say like solidarity between the Latinx and black communities, you're erasing the fact that there are black people in the Latinx community. You know what I'm saying? When you don't say like non-black Latinx people, you're setting this idea that the norm of a Latinx person is J-Lo or Shakira. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're like erasing the fact that there even are black people within the community. Hi, you're listening to Neem Talks Race, the interview series, episode three. Today, I get to know more about Emily, Jamie, and Caleb, and their understanding of anti-blackness from various different POC perspectives and how they've recognized anti-blackness within themselves or within their own greater community. We talk about social media, Gen Z, and lots of great things. So it's quite a long episode, but... You know, you can always pause, take a break, but I hope you enjoy listening. So thank you for joining me today. We're going to talk about anti-Blackness from different POC perspectives. Um, I think it's a nice episode to do because on the last episode, I kind of had a lot of thoughts about how to recognize anti-Blackness with myself because I noticed there's a lot of similarities with the way Kaya and Kellen addressed white privilege and how they're looking at anti-blackness. And I think this is like a nice segue off of that episode to kind of talk about a similar thing from a different perspective. So I'll introduce myself first. I'm Tasneem. I use she, her pronouns. I identify as Arab or Brown. We'll go with Jamie. And then... Oh, my name is Jamie. I use she, her pronouns, and I racially identify as Brown or biracial. Uh, my name is Caleb. Uh, I, my pronouns are he, him, and uh, I am African-American and part Haitian. Uh, my name is Emily. I use her pronouns. I identify as mixed race and ethnically as Ashkenazi Jewish white and Mexican-American. Okay, great. So I know with everything happening right now with the whole Black Lives Matter movement kind of really taking off more than it's ever been before. There's a lot of talk about anti-Blackness and I've noticed there's a lot more discussion about anti-Blackness from different POC communities more than I've noticed before. And I've definitely taken a more more time looking within myself and within my family and my community at large because of this movement, definitely more than I used to. And I think that's a great thing for a lot of people to do right now. And I was wondering what are the ways, I guess, considering the time that we're in right now, have, have you, I guess, looked either within yourself or talking with other non-Black POC friends or other POC friends in general? Like what, has, what have you been doing, I guess, in this whole movement taking place? Whoever wants to start. I just remember, um, with everything going on, like when George Floyd was murdered, um, it was really hard for me and I just needed some time. Like I, I, I couldn't go on social media. I just didn't feel like talking with anyone. And I kind of just had to really think about, I, I was just thinking about a lot of different things at the time. And um, I was kind of in a bad state. I'm not going to lie. I was in a bad state and I, I just, I couldn't find a way to get out of it. And then when I saw protests around the, around the country and around the world and saw how many people were supporting and how many people were reposting, it started to get more hopeful again. And 
I kind of missed that feeling. And so I just remembered feeling really negative at the start. And then I started feeling positive. I started to see how many people were showing up and doing so many things. And that was really inspiring for me. And so um, as of now, I, I'm so with the ASB, because I got nominated for ASB, I, I sent a, a statement out and I was talking about how we should at win, how um, we need to have like a multicultural like room for people of color and, and the black students at Lane because we don't feel represented. We, we feel like we're just not entirely with the school. Like we kind of feel just isolated. And so that's something that I brought their attention to. And they said that they would put it in this school and then the new school, but we need to do more. And so I'm always looking to do more. And I think that's what everyone needs to, because that's how change really happens by pushing to the limit and doing more than what's expected already. So yeah, that's just something yeah. that I've been writing. But yeah. That's good. Yeah, I think I've been thinking a lot about like, how race functions at Lincoln and in predominantly white spaces. And I feel like really often we think of it as just like a very binary thing where it's like, like at Lincoln, for example, because there's so few POCs, I think things are either like really split black and white as either you're white or a POC. And then everyone that's a POC is just grouped together and we're super homogenized. It's talked about like we all have the same exact experience at that school. And sometimes it feels like that because when we're trying to find community, I feel like sometimes, at least for me, I'm not really worried among POCs about like what racial group they're in. It just feels like we're all POCs. But I've started to kind of realize like how that's can be really harmful to not think about the differences in our experiences. And like, for example, it would be a lie for me as a white passing person of color to think that I'm having the same exact experience at Lincoln as Um, a black POC or someone who's visibly a person of color. And I think just kind of breaking out of the idea of like colorblindness, even within communities of color, that we're all living the same thing is really important. Because like, I know when I think about when I'm having conversations with race about white people, if they're in a colorblind mindset and we're like, and they're like, oh no, like we're all, all just living the same thing. I'm much more likely to disconnect. But in communities of color, if we're doing the same thing and we're also approaching it as if we all have the same experience, like, of course, it's going to create disconnect. And I think I've been seeing how being honest about privileges that some of us, including myself, hold could actually lead to more connection is super important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I like have to agree with Emily on that. Like you kind of took everything out of my head, you know, and like put it in such a good way. But I think that personally, like it wasn't until honestly now that I realized that like my struggles as like an, an like an Asian American woman are not the same as say like a black man in America because of like the homogenous style of Lincoln and how we're all seen. When I was first realizing, like of course I knew I was a person of color when I was younger, but it was more of a like um oh like I'm actually different when you get to high school and you see all of these like different cultural clubs and things like that so it kind of like showed me a little bit otherwise and so I feel like I really wanted to like I felt like I wasn't embracing my like person of color side or like my my Filipino side or anything like that so I think that I tried really really hard to do that by almost like culturally appropriating other cultures and really thinking that like just because I was a person of color that like everything that had to do with like race and racism related back directly to me 
when in fact it like it doesn't because I am like a lighter skin tone but I'm still a person of color so it's that weird kind of like dynamic I guess yeah that's just the environment I think about if we were in a less homogenous community would there be more like celebration towards individuality within different aspects of um race like uh, yeah that's very true I definitely felt that way going to elementary school middle school they really just kind of group you all as one and think you all have the same experience when when it's like very different um and that kind of brings up something I wanted to talk about so I know we all have different identities we're all bringing different perspectives to the table I was wondering within each of your respective communities what's an example of anti-blackness maybe you just realized or maybe when you were younger you didn't think that was anti-blackness but now you're looking back on it now you realize it is I can start off because I have one experience I know that really stuck with me um so when I went to Morocco I think that was like 2018 I had a host family and they had a maid and she was dark skin um I, I don't know what she identified as but yeah um and she was like the maid of the family and she was also 16 and I didn't know she was 16 because she looked kind of older and I just thought it was like someone who comes in but no she was 16 she could not read she could not write and she spoke very little English and I remember my roommate and I we were really like shocked by that to think wow there's like a 16 year old maid who doesn't have you know the ability to read or write and she's just working for a family and that's all she has to live for while we're here on a trip you know going to school and doing all these fun things and it was kind of a moment where like whoa this doesn't seem right so I remember we talked about it with our teacher at the school we were going to and he kind of explained to us that um, like in Morocco there's a very strong presence of anti-blackness and in particular a lot of Afro-Arabs work very like menial jobs where they're like janitors or they're maids and they like come from southern Morocco and they don't get paid well and there's a lack of general resources especially because the girl can't read so there's probably lots of other girls like her doing the same thing and I remember my roommate and I were like dang like we didn't think anti-blackness was so prevalent in a country that isn't white, a majority white country. And I just remember that moment thinking like, man, our world's like not so, you know, friendly as I thought it was to all these different perspectives, to all these different identities. And upon doing more like research and reading, it's definitely, the Arab world is definitely not innocent. There's a lot of anti-black things that are happening and I can't help but think because of how homogenous that community is and how strongly guided they are by collectivism and this whole idea where they want to save face where they don't want to acknowledge issues that are deeply rooted in the way their society works and how that just continues to put darker skinned Arabs or Afro Arabs in I guess like a lower class yeah I just thought that was that I remember that moment really just kind of stuck with me considering how like we were the same age at the time as the maid so yeah yeah I mean speaking for the Latinx experience in terms of this I think um there's a lot of like 
just because of the history of how Latin America was colonized, you know, when you have like Spanish colonizers coming in and taking over indigenous people, and then you have slave trade bringing in people from Africa to Latin America, which I think people don't really know about. There is a lot of really, really significant colorism and racism in Latin America, and you have like all these ideas. There's this thing called mejorar la raza in Latinx communities, which literally means like better the race. And it's something you'll hear really commonly. And it's basically like the idea that people encourage their kids to have kids with lighter skin people to produce lighter skin children because they obviously view like light skin as the ideal of beauty. And they're very cognizant of the privileges that looking whiter will bring for their kids. And there's just this like complete erasure of Afro-Latinx people. And um, I think it's just really interesting to see like how all those things that were part of colonization like really have really long-standing cultural impacts now and how the Latinx community functions. And it's really interesting to see like how it divides people and pits them against each other, you know? Because then you have like people among a marginalized community that have lighter skin who are getting treated as better and they're being praised for what makes them closer to whiteness. And so they're like starting to think that they're better because of that. And they think that they're better than other Latinx people that are Afro Latinx or have darker skin, you know? And it's, it's really just this trick because you think that you're closer to whiteness, but really you'll never be white. You know what I'm saying? So it's really just pinning you against each other to distract from like what's really at large because you're never going to be white enough to actually be white but you still think that you're better because you're treated as better because you're closer to white than Afro-Latinx people or darker-skinned Latinx people or indigenous-looking Latinx people. Well, I think for me, it's been kind of hard because there's little to no Filipino community in Portland, so I don't think I've ever really been really emerged in like Filipino culture. I've never been to the Philippines. My entire family is in California. It's only really like my mom and my sister and I. And so I don't really have like a very personal example, but I did talk to my mom because she grew up in the Philippines. She learned about it and she is a darker skinned woman. So she was telling me about how it's very common in Filipino culture to have parents and like moms especially tell their kids to come inside or don't be out in the sun too long because they don't want their kids Mm -hmm. to become darker and that was like a problem for my mom like she told me she was talking to me about how she was never raised to feel beautiful and she was never raised to marry or aspire to be anything other than like kind of like a farm worker because historically within the Philippines um the like colorism really stems from like the social class of farmers were usually the darker skinned people whereas like the spanish and chinese colonizers became the landowners which obviously they had whiter skin um so i think it was hard for her but i personally don't think i've ever really grown up with that experience because she never brought it into my immediate family um it was actually more of like the opposite for us because we always had like tanning competitions and stuff. I, I relate to that tanning thing because my mom will like tan outside and then she'll be like oh my wrist is getting dark I want to go inside like I don't want to be too dark and I'm like well like why do you say that and she's like I, I just don't want to be too dark and sometimes she would like even say like praise me for being like the whitest in the family she'd be like oh my god you're the whitest in the family and say it in a way that's like that's a good thing and I'm like well like why is it and I think a lot of people I guess 
you know, our parents especially are raised with that like mindset and directly related to colorism with like being closer to whiteness is better. And, you know, obviously there's bleaching creams out there in the market and, you know, with beauty and everything you see in the fashion world and modeling and just everything you can't help but think that's true. And then that also just translates to jobs, like seeing how people are treated differently with interviews or what kind of people you see in positions of power. It's always white people or people that are lighter skin. So, yeah. I even remember actually when I was like, it was my first trip like out of the country, like we were going to Mexico or something. And I remember I was like swimming in the pool all day. And then we get back to the hotel room and I realized that I had tan lines and I started bawling. I was so sad. I was like freaking out. I was like, what are these lines on my skin? And my parents were trying to tell me like, oh, people pay like hundreds of dollars to get a tan like that, like all of this stuff. And I just remember feeling so sad and upset and like going back to like Forest Park Elementary School and like trying to convince everyone that I was like white and like showing them like my school picture from like the year before like oh I was like so much lighter then I just like went to Mexico and that I just like suddenly became like tan like I suddenly became like a person of color. No and like with that with that like I just as you bringing up Forest Park in my head I was just thinking of a time in Forest Park where um like in my class I was the only African-American male that was like even at all in the school so I definitely experienced some anti-blackness for sure at Forest Park I mean it's crazy like I remember like ask going home to my mom one day and I was like mom like why is there like no one that looks like me like is there like something like wrong with me why is everyone like why do they look so different from me and Obviously, I knew that they were white. I obviously knew I was, I had a different skin color as them, but I always felt like I was treated a little bit different in a way. And not like, not like it was super racist. It wasn't like in a racist way, but I always felt like I just didn't belong with that, like the type of friend groups or the type of people that I was hanging around. So then she, she ended up telling me, you know, you're African American, um, you know, the, you do things, you, you have to do things differently than these white kids do is what she would always tell me. And that right there has always kind of saved like my life because I remember being like the talk um, where African-American males have to discuss about policing and what you have to do when you get pulled over by the police, you can't do some of the things that the white kids do. And so I remember that conversation very vividly because that has just been reminded throughout my whole life the things I have to constantly pay attention for and always be aware of my surroundings because my blackness does uh, tremendously affect the things that I do and and it's sad that we live in a world where that is the case but it's how you have to protect yourself and I've always learned in the right different um, surroundings where I have to protect myself because of my blackness so you know, I totally understand what you're saying about Forest Park because I totally got that same type of vibe. Yeah, that's a, it's a very white institution. Yeah, like actually thinking about it, like Caleb, I think you actually were, you and Eric were probably the actual only <laughs> yeah. black people at that school. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I literally can't remember one other person. Really? Yeah, no, it's, it's like crazy. 
probably West Sylvan, the numbers didn't even change that much either. Maybe it went up one or two people, but. Yeah, yeah. Um, that kind of made me think of another thing. Um, Emily earlier was talking about how, um, you know, within a group of color, um, there's like competition to being like closer to whiteness or um, what was I thinking of? Oh, I was thinking of the whole like model minority myth in America and how seeing the way that different minorities have responded to Black Lives Matter and saying that like, oh, you know, black on black crime is a thing or using like using that as like a valid reason or, or I've just seen a lot of comments being made from other people of color that kind of reduce, I don't know what's the word, but make it seem like the problem going on is not that big of a deal. And basically the model minority myth, all I know, I don't know too much about it because I was looking into it recently, but it's like one group in America, one minority group in America is kind of placed on a pedestal and given a lot more resources to find success or prioritize with like immigration. I know that was a thing in the past with people who did have degrees or who were working in the science related field, particularly coming from Asia were prioritized versus other immigrants. And then you would just see a whole cycle of successful Asian Americans. And a lot of white people I know would be like, oh, racism is not a thing. Like, look how many successful Asian people we have in this country. And I just see that argument a lot and how I think that can also be dangerous within communities of color, you know, because then they'll fight with each other and then they'll continue to put down black people in this country. If anyone has any thoughts on that, because I'm still learning about that too. Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of talk like from the Asian community and saying, I don't know necessarily if I'm going to pronounce his name right. Is it, It's like Tao Tai, I think. it's He's the one of the officers that was involved in George Floyd's death, and he is an Asian American. I believe he's Lao. I'm really bad at pronunciation. But um, basically, he was, he was standing there as um, Derek something was leaning on George Floyd's neck and basically said if he if he's talking then he can breathe is what his like response was and I've seen a lot of Asian American people and like the Asian American community kind of like almost defending that and being like oh well like when you watch the video like he looks so uncomfortable like with what's happening and I'm like well if you're watching a video like a very graphic and violent video of like a black man being murdered and the only thing that you can focus your attention onto is your fellow Asian American that like seems uncomfortable then that's like the same type of dangerous like justification that white people will use for white officers and saying that oh well like he's a person of color so he was there so it had to be have it had to have been more than just race mm -hmm. because like no there's no way that could have happened so yeah. it's genuinely so real i think um i remember this was brought up at the beginning but i feel like as i've like tried to think more about anti-blackness and my privilege and all this stuff i've seen a lot of similarities as to what like my white peers have described when they're thinking about their white guilt um, and it's very similar because I think often from communities of color, when there is focus put on the particular experience of black people in this country, there's a feeling that it's invalidating of your experiences. Um, and I think something that's made me think about is the fact that like often in spaces of color, like 
or even, yeah, like my voice is really just, it tends to be centered. You know what I'm saying? Because of the way that I look, because it's more palatable coming from me um, than it is from a lot of other Latinx people. And so I think sometimes for people of color who have more privilege in relation to black people, it's very uncomfortable all of a sudden to have to shift and understand that like you're not the center of this conversation for a moment. It doesn't mean mm -hmm. that your struggles are invalid, but you have to be, it's, it's like when white people often try to use like different parts of their identity, like, oh no, I'm a woman to distract from the fact mm -hmm. that they have yeah. like mm -hmm. in this instance, like these things can coexist. You can be a person of color. You can have experienced racism and you have to be comfortable decentering yourself um, in order to really unpack your privilege. Yeah. I mean, Emily and Jamie, you y'all pretty much said it. I mean, I mean, <laughs> that was pretty much what I was thinking. Um, especially with um George George Floyd's um murder, I was thinking that as well. And and it really can, it has a really big impact on different uh, communities of color. And that is something that we should try to. I mean, it, it's something that we should try to understand and then try to correct in a way because then it's like the same type of shift and I don't I mean I don't know it, it, it's really it's really hard because you already have racism with um white people and communities of color and then when it's against other people of color against another person of color it like it complicates it, and then it confuses white people and so that's really dangerous and I don't know, I don't know how we can, I think there just needs to be more education and more awareness being shared throughout so we can know what to do in these types of uh, circumstances. Yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go off. <laughs> the thing about it too that I've been thinking about is like, it's just so self-defeating, you know what I'm saying? For communities of color to be like, to, to be letting, allowing themselves, I mean, it's not, it's something that they've been conditioned into. So I'm not trying to say that this is something that like they're just doing, you know, like mm -hmm. this is something that we're set up to do, but right. like we're set up to fight between each other and to want to center ourselves and make it about ourselves and to like create this division between each other, but it's self-defeating. You know what I'm saying? And like, I think the best way to create connection between communities of color is to really be honest about what's going on. Um, and I think, for people who, for people of color who are mixed in particular with white, like someone who's half white and half of color, like myself, um, when I was really first starting to like think about this, I was really confused because everything that I was seeing was directed towards white people. It was like telling them how to unpack their privilege and anti-blackness. So I was like, all right, like I'll just come at this from that perspective and read this as if I'm a white woman. Obviously that didn't work. You know what I'm saying? Like that's not how I identify, like it didn't work for me. Um, and so I think then like once I started to, to seek, to understand it from my particular point of view, it really like, it changed the way I was thinking about things. Cause like, for example, if you're a mixed person, that's half white. I think it's for a lot of your life, you've probably viewed being half white as something that's been invalidating to you. It's something that people have used to like, like for all my life, you know what I'm saying? Like there was a point in my life, like every day for a year, this white kid would like message me on social media and like harass me about my identity and make fun of it. You know what I'm saying? So it's something that for a, a long part of your life has been used to invalidate you and harass you and all these things. And then being able to shift your mindset and see that that can be true. And it's something that has uplifted me in a lot of ways, I think is important. Like understanding that if you're a non-black POC, if you're mixed doing this work, it's gonna look different than it does for white people. And that 
at first I would think it was like selfish to really like think about my own experiences, but I realized I have to because until I can like get past that insecurity of being mixed, I'm not going to be able to come to terms with the fact that I have privilege. Like it's just part of the deal, you know, and it looks different than it does for white people. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, um, like, kind of pretty much what Emily said, that I think that, like, the United States, because the the basis and the foundation of racism is within anti-Blackness, like, I think that if you think, I like to think of it as, like, a metaphor, so the leaves on the top of, like, a flower is, like, racism towards maybe the Asian American community or the Latinx community or Middle Eastern people and things like that. And then the root of the the plant is anti-blackness and racism towards black people because that's where that's like the the basis or like the comparison of skin tones is too of like when you think about it as a gradient. So I yeah. think that in order for white people to maintain their power when they were realizing that there were other people that weren't necessarily white but weren't necessarily black, they had to divide and conquer in order to prevent us from standing in solidarity because there is power in numbers. So they, I think that, like Emily said, we're conditioned and socialized to be in this racist, anti-black society and things like that but it's it's purposely put there to separate communities of color from being able to like have an anarchy essentially yeah yeah i was thinking about that recently when we had like the affinity meeting at lincoln like the poc affinity meeting how it's it's a tool of white supremacy for um non-black pocs to kind of i don't know what's the word but just to i guess openly hold their anti-blackness and just continue to act on it without even realizing that hey maybe we should not do this because then that puts the focus away from um white people if other communities of color are focused on targeting black people or thinking or continuing to believe in stereotypes then we're then we're not focusing on the fact that white people oppressed people of color in this country and especially black people and indigenous people and I think that was like a really weird thing for me to realize I was like whoa if we if we just keep fighting or keep arguing with each other then we're not gonna get anywhere and like Emily said it's also self-defeating to do that because then we're not gonna get anywhere because we're all just gonna be fighting and the white people are looking like hey like just from the outside just moving on with their lives so yeah, and then also another thing I thought about was how minority groups just kind of internalize so many different behaviors of white supremacy. And I think one of them was, there's a lot of talk about like abolition and reform. And I think a lot of people are kind of raised to think that like, oh, abolition is not possible. Like, it's just impossible to completely get rid of the police and change all these structures and I was thinking about it I was like wasn't that just white supremacy kind of telling us to believe that these structures are like so strong and like so powerful that we can't get rid of them and that was and I was thinking about that and I was like like we shouldn't think that way that's just white supremacy trying to get in our heads telling us that we can't like change them or we can't try and change systems and I think that behavior has impacted a lot of minority groups thinking that, oh, when you look at like model minorities, like, oh, we can't change the system. We're gonna stay in our place of privilege. Mm -hmm. And 
not want to change it because oh we can't like it's impossible and I think that's like a really toxic mindset to have especially right now I think more people are trying to get rid of that and trying to be more hopeful especially from communities of color yeah no for sure and honestly like when I was feeling I was feeling when I was feeling really down that was kind of the first thing I was thinking it was kind of like that white supremacy type of mindset was getting in my head it was like but man like we're not going to ever be able to change like racism is going to always exist like we can't fix these like institutions we can't correct and you know in that type of energy is super is super toxic and that's how you don't find your way out of it and you know to get more hopeful you have to really believe and i really do believe that we can one of these days that we can all come together and we can implement a better system that's not based off of the racism and white supremacy that this country has already had a huge impact on people of color and especially african-americans that we can actually correct these systems and we can try to make something better because if we don't make something better then we're not going to be changing any of these race institutions and so I, I i totally agree with that just finding your way to get out of that negative energy really it'll really help us all come together as community and actually do something about it so yeah yeah i think that like what's really helped me is like i've put a lot of faith into and like hope into like our own generation just because like I don't really I don't know if this applies to anyone else but I don't really trust the news as like my main media source like I honestly would trust Twitter and TikTok and Instagram more than the news because I'm seeing like on the news they're saying like oh all of these looters and that's all they ever want to talk about but then on like TikTok you're seeing these girls like throwing it back in front of police officers and like stealing Mm -hmm. horses and tanks and all these things and you're seeing real videos of police violence and undercover cops and all of these other things so I think that social media has actually been a very positive thing for this right now because you don't see like a boomer on tiktok like they're not gonna see all of this stuff they don't know our secret plans and this and that like it's been a little bit more beneficial which doesn't mean that like i mean i don't want to be like doubtful and say like oh like things are never going to change because again that's just like the white supremacist values that are like penetrating into my head but I really do think that our generation has gotten to the point where we literally do not give a fuck. Like, we have the highest suicide rate out of any other generation in the world, meaning, like, we already kind of want to die, so, like, give us a cause that we would be willing to die for, and you think we're going to lose? Like, there's no way. There's no way. Like... (laughs) Mm -hmm. I've seen on Twitter, like, tweets about how gen z will be too scared to correct the waiter if they messed up their drink but then they'll throw your gas back at the cops and i was like that is true there was the funniest tweet that was like this there was like this girl and she like went up to this cop who was refusing to wear a mask and she pointed out every single facial imperfection he had and what cosmetic surgery he should get to fix it like she was like you know like your crow eye bags underneath your eyes are so disgusting you should really consider botox like i'm literally gonna throw up like such mean girl energy concentrated so like perfect perfectly at a cop is just hilarious like so funny yeah 
Yeah, I definitely think because social media is not censored in the same way that the news is, at least not yet, hopefully it's not, it definitely changes the way, I guess, people in our generation take in news, because it looks a lot different than like CNN and Fox versus when you go on TikTok and you see like the seven foot tall tank yes. guy, everyone making like fan edits of him. Like you won't and, see like, that on the Everyone news. calling like anonymous daddy. <laughs> so funny. I, th- I think what we were saying about Gen Z was very, very true. I was just trying to find some tweets that I <laughs> I found the funniest girl that was like, but I thought it was so funny. She was like, basically, I think what Gen Z should do is show up at like in front of the White House dressed, like decked out in like MAGA hats, all of this stuff, and then have like Tide Pod cookies that look exactly like Tide Pods and then be like, we listen to our president. Like he told us to eat bleach and it'll save us. So we'll do it. So everyone eats it they drop for five minutes no one moves and then afterwards everyone just stands up takes off their maga shit throws it in a bonfire and just starts dancing around in a circle around the bonfire screaming vines like at the top of their lungs like literally the adults would be like what the fuck? like very cult like so yeah it's so it's fun elaborate no i know yeah. i would like i want to do it like I want to organize it, but I feel like people feel like you're fucking crazy. So, <laughs> yeah, I love Gen Z. Gen Z is wild. Yeah, in a in a less, I guess, intricate way, people are like buying tickets at the rally, mm-hmm. so it can be empty. I feel like. Ha- do you think mm-hmm. they've caught on about that? Like the Probably. Trump administration? Probably. Or, like, the fact that they bullied, we bullied Trump in the comments into turning off his comment section. Like, there's so many, like, fairy tweets that are, like, Trump 2020, but on a tombstone. Or, like, love yourself because we fucking hate you. And, like, all of the shit. Like, so badly to the point where he had to turn off his comment section. Because it was flooded with just, like, kids. So, no with the heart. Yeah. Yeah. Um... Okay, um, I, Emily earlier um, brought up an interesting point about how non-Black POCs are trying to, I guess right now, decenter themselves from the issue of racism, at least right now, because of Black Lives Matter. And one of the things I, I've noticed is the difference in terminology of POC versus, um, is it B-I-POC or do you say bi-POC? Like... No. I don't know how to say it. It but... stood for like bisexual people of color. I was like, I know that's what it can sound specific. like, but <laughs> no, it's black, indigenous, and then people of color. It's like, it can't hurt. Yeah. But that's something I've noticed to come out of this time because before I've just been like, when I'm referring to race and racism in a more general sense, I've just said POC. Mm-hmm. And like Emily said, when you're in a predominantly white space and you are talking about those things, it's very easy to kind of group all those experiences as the same. And especially just because how I've noticed white people talk about race, they'll say like people of color and then talk about something, but then it doesn't affect everyone who is a person of color like the same way. And I think language has a lot to do with that. And especially when people are like just starting to talk about race. So I think this like new term, I don't know if it's new, but it's new to me, can probably be, I don't know, pretty helpful because, you know, it kind of 
puts more focus at least to black and indigenous people in this country like when we talk about those things yeah i think it's the idea that like if if the most marginalized person which in this case is black and indigenous people is free then we're all free you know um and i think it's true that like there's such a tendency to homogenize the experiences not only just like of people of color but even within groups of color like i don't know at least in the latinx community like it's not like people from two different Latin American countries are living the exact same thing, but it's a lot easier, I think, for like white dominant culture to see them as just the same thing. You know what I'm saying? Like it's easier to group people. It's easier to, to digest, to group people into just these huge categories when obviously sometimes like there's not overlap. And I mean, there is overlap and mixed experience, but you're not living the same thing. And so I think it's more digestible to just group people together rather than actually taking the time to differentiate between what they're living. Yeah, that's very true for me because I know when people talk about like Arabs or Middle Eastern, people kind of group all of like North Africa and the Middle East as one group. And like, that's fine, but there there's so many different issues, especially between like North Africa and the Middle East. And I know, I think there's a whole problem with anti-Blackness in both areas, but North Africa in particular, because it's in the African continent, a lot of I guess I've seen I've seen more like North Africans say they're African when it's like convenient for them just to have that like I don't know say like oh I'm black or I'm African and kind of use that in a way to say or use it to claim parts of like black culture in America that they think is cool but then they don't want to say that in other scenarios and I've just found that interesting and also it's been weird to see how close North African countries are to African countries literally beneath it but have such a strong I guess sense of superiority against darker skinned people and that's just been crazy because it's such a different culture once you go like past the Sahara Desert Mm -hmm. and I just don't understand like why that's a thing but then when you look at the history of colonialism and colorism it's not a surprise and especially when they adopt similar ways that um, like European countries have like set up their systems of government it's not a surprise to see like foreign nations have a similar tendency to like the white governments that they aspire to be and I've, I've just been really frustrated by that but because oh, I've seen like recently a lot of like Arab celebrities have spoke out on social media about Black Lives Matter, but they do it in such a wrong way where they post a picture of themselves in blackface and they're like, we stand with them. And it's like, ooh. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. yeah. There's interesting. like a, yeah, there's a, I think a lack of education, especially about racism and especially in areas where it's the same group of people. I'm not surprised that they don't have that conversation because they like think they're all chilling. They're like, oh, we're all the same we all treat each other the same, but that's not the case. And I think a lot of communities around the world need more of that education because they don't realize how they contribute to anti-Blackness. Like Jamie said, it's like the root of like everything. That's why you see it across all cultures and all identities. Yeah, exactly. That's so interesting you said that about like how, like it just made me think about how, I think that race, there, there there are big similarities between how it's talked about within the U.S. and Latin America, but I think 
race is also constructed really differently. And there's often this idea that it's like, oh, like we're all just this one big happy mestizo race, which means like mixed. Everyone's like, oh, we're just a mix of indigenous, Spanish, and Mm -hmm. African, and we're all like happy and coexisting. And there's really this like colorblind mindset to to the differences really that people are experiencing. And I think at least in a lot of Latinx communities, maybe less so in the US, but there's just kind of this idea that like what you look like and how you present is what you are. Because if you can pass as white, you're just going to go with that because it's going to make things a lot easier for you. Um, But like I'm saying, because there's just this idea that like, we're all just like one big, happy mixed population that ends up really erasing darker skinned people and Afro-Latinx people. And I even see it. And I caught myself thinking about this, that like, when you just say like solidarity between the Latinx and black communities, you're erasing the fact that there are black people in the Latinx community. You know what I'm saying? When you don't say like mm-hmm. non-black Latinx people, you're setting this idea that the norm of a Latinx person is J-Lo or Shakira. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? You're, you're like erasing the fact that there even are black people within the community. I feel like it's almost, it's kind of weird for me because I I don't want to sound like I'm trying to separate myself from the Asian community because I'm not. I'm very proud to be a part of it. But I, I've noticed that like throughout my entire life, people love to like, you know, guess your race, like all of these things. And I don't think I've ever gotten like Asian or Filipino or anything like that. I've always consistently gotten like everything under the sun besides that. Like either it's Mexican or it's like Middle Eastern or I've gotten native and all of these different things. So it's kind of weird because I feel like white America sees Asian as strictly like Chinese, Japanese and Korean with, and like completely disregards like Southeastern countries and things like that. So I think it's kind of hard for me to kind of like relate to a lot of things within the Asian community because it's not that I don't see myself as that. It's just that I don't look like that. So I don't feel the same types of I, I feel a different type of oppression and a different type of way, I guess. Yeah. That's definitely a privilege, I guess, for non-Black POC, the lighter you look or depending on how you look, that has a lot of privilege in comparison to the way um, other people in this country who are Black or who are Indigenous or who are visibly a person of color mm-hmm. live their life day to day. And especially for police brutality, like when people group people of color and talk about these things, I get really annoyed by that because it's very obvious that black people are targeted so heavily by police more than any other minority group. And I think people need to realize that. And I think more minorities need to realize that and kind of, like Emily said, not focus on yourself for once and this mm-hmm. whole issue and just to really look at the way like the prison system works and police in general and how that continues to target black people in such a unique way that other minorities do have the privilege of like not being a victim of that Mm -hmm. I think that really requires us to like when we're trying to decenter ourselves to think about why we get so panicked at the idea of like not being the center of the conversation like why we feel like there's only enough room for one of us why we feel like everything has to be about us. And I feel like it's so, it's so rooted in this like white supremacy culture idea that there's only enough space for one person of color. And that because of that, then we feel like if someone else has talked about in this case, groups of color with less privilege and black communities, then all of a sudden like our 
struggles will just be slept under the rug, but instead mm -hmm. understanding that there's room enough for everyone, meaning that we need to move aside and understand that our struggles are valid while understanding the differences in oppression. It's not playing oppression Olympics. I just think it's not saying that like only one group struggle can be valid, but it is saying that if you're coming at this from a colorblind perspective and pretending that non-black people of color are experiencing the exact, the exact same things as black people of color, you're gonna just create disconnect because it's mm -hmm. not true. You know, and it's gonna create feedback inevitably and obviously. Yeah, it's like a competition for people to like victimize like themselves. And I've, I've noticed that and how it like parallels to the way that like white women talk about race and how wow. they're very like quick to like victimize themselves in this situation. And I'm like, hmm, well, people of color kind of do that as well when it comes to police brutality or just other discussions about race in general. And then I'm like, well, I don't want to be like that white feminist. So like, I shouldn't think that way. <laughs> Honestly, that's what kind of like keeps me in check. I'm, I don't yes, want to be like I a white feminist. I, I should like be more aware of what space I take up and what space I like want to take up. Yeah, honestly. We I all just, know how annoying that, that is. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, that that keeps me in check for sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. Um. <laughs> I feel like it's also so weird to think about how um, like if you're a mixed person of color and you're halfway I think because I'm white passing I very much my whole life been praised for the things that make me closer to white you know because that's like I get listened to more things are more palatable coming from me I have like a unique in with like white figures of authority because it's like I'm still a like quote-unquote diverse perspective but it's easier to hear coming from me like all these things like I'm very much praised for that but then when you think about the fact that because of like Jamie's like flower metaphor about how anti-blackness is really at the root of so much racism it's interesting to think about how like as you're simultaneously being praised for the things that are like white enough about you you're also being really like put down and learning to hate the things about you that are closer to blackness and closer to like for example like I think growing up as a kid very much like every day I'd be like oh my god my eyes are turning green because I have very dark brown eyes and I was like I hated it you know what I'm saying and if I think about why it's because I've always been uplifted for the things that make me closer to whiteness and hated the things about myself and been told to hate things about myself that make me closer to blackness on that scale of white to black that we're taught mm -hmm. to you know what I'm saying whether it's like having really dark hair having really thick hair um just like the food that I eat all these things that make you closer on that scale you're simultaneously thought as you're being uplifted to like really distance yourself from those things and it's very weird how those things like work in tandem and it's just very confusing to think about I feel like yeah I think one thing um I think one thing that I've like really think I've thought about more often is like Eurocentric beauty standards within anti-blackness and realizing that like as I am like a woman of color and I've grown up like we've been grown up we've grown up being told that we're not as beautiful or this and that. I still have privilege within the way I look because I have certain features that adhere to, adhere to Eurocentric beauty standards. Like one really big thing is like my hair. Like I don't have thick curly hair. I have pin straight, very thin, fine hair. And I think that's been one thing that has been like a very big 
like a curtain opening in my face is like, yes, like while you may have been put down for like the color of your skin or like the way your eyes are shaped, like you still have so much privilege within things like your hair. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And skin tone as well. Like mm-hmm. I've seen a lot on social media and like on TikTok about how like light skins are always like praised to be like the best and the most beautiful, beautiful and a lot of dark skins are not and that they're like ugly or that they're just not as beautiful and even like with makeup brands not having enough foundation shades or even just the way people praise others on social media like just from what I've seen it's it always is the light-skinned person of whatever race they are getting praised the most yeah right I mean even like when you watch like commercials it's you rarely see like a black family that's like being represented or like shown like how like amazing they are it's always like you turn on the tv and you see another like white family it's just like living their normal life and then that's just that's the other thing that the institutions have been doing to like black people specifically is like you know they're promoting white people but then they're not they're like discluding people of color and especially black people and you see that with you see that with um with clothing, you see that with music, you see that with anything that you can really think about. It's just like this disconnect from, um, it's really like, it, it's just a disconnect. And I don't know, it's kind of it's kind of hard to say. Um, Cause like whenever I, whenever I was younger and I would just go on like um, the TV, I would always just see people that didn't look like me and I would always think like why aren't black people put on the um why aren't black people being represented why aren't there commercials like me why aren't there shows that are uh for me like the only show that I really would watch was like I mean the Cosby show when I was younger I would kind of watch the Cosby show and I would watch the Prince of Bel-Air and that was really it and those were like the two shows that I would watch and there weren't like many others that I could really just go and be like, oh yeah, those are people that look like me. Those are people that are like, that are black. And so I think nowadays we're doing, or people are doing better by diversifying like their casts and including like different products for um, African-American women. But I always think there's this huge, like, do you guys get what I'm saying? Like there's kind of like this disconnect Mm-hmm. but I don't I don't really know how to phrase it you it know? feels like a marketing strategy too for a lot of places especially now like graphic designers will put like a white hand shaking a black hand and they're like we've ended racism as a company we are now like <laughs> stepping up our game right. and I've seen like so much of that and it's like mm-hmm. okay like maybe they're going somewhere but then you can't right. help but think like I don't really think so like the editor of Vogue um and and a wind tour was like I'm so sorry I haven't uplifted any like black designers or creatives, but she's been there for like 32 years and she's just now saying this and you can't help but think it's all like marketing or them trying to like appeal to white guild and white people who now like want to, you know, support brands that are not racist or brands that are like POC owned. And it feels like it's all like marketing because it it can easily like, play into everyone's guilt like easily 
Something um, interesting that like Emily and I were kind of talking about the other day was like social media and like a lot of POCs have like different opinions about like white people using social media right now and like trying to raise awareness and I wanted to like ask you guys like what your personal opinions were of it and like what you thought. Do you want to say like what you and Emily were thinking of just to start? I mean yeah sure I'll like my personal opinion is that like I think regarding the Black Lives Matter movement right now I think a lot of people have been doing a really good job of raising awareness but it kind of gets to the point where you can raise so much awareness but until you actually do something and you actually make space for other for actual black voices then you're kind of just taking up so much space and not even allowing those people to speak the people that you're wanting to amplify you're literally putting them down further and i think it's it's gotten to the point where social media like activism and things like that have become so almost toxic to where like I like as a person of color like literally don't feel comfortable posting things on my story anymore just because I feel like I'm like conforming to that like toxicity and things like that and I think that this includes like non-black people of color as well as white people but I think it's time to stop reacting as we need to like listen now you know like it's time like everyone freaking knows what's going on we don't need to continue to post about it over and over again i think it's time to just like stay silent maybe yeah um i saw this like one meme of a white woman i'll like show it kind (laughs) of but the caption says how i'm silencing myself to amplify black voices today by talking about how i'm silencing myself to amplify black voices I sent that I sent that to this one white girl because I was like this reminds me of you and I all I just sent it like no context and then they're like oh is this about me thank you for like calling me out genuinely and then they say how can I make my voice louder and I was like did you read the post like correctly (laughs) and I was like it's like yikes it really feels like some of these people are just doing it to I guess like get their voice out there or not even their like real voice just to make it seem like oh this is happening I'm gonna stick with the times and make sure everyone knows that this is me now because some people's Instagrams have drastically changed since this started and I've like never seen that energy before like when Trayvon Martin happened when literally Ahmaud Arbery too even Mm -hmm. like I didn't see that same energy but then George Floyd comes up now their bio says Black Lives Matter. I'm like, okay. I honestly like don't know. Yeah, I don't know like who to trust on social media with these things. It's definitely made me like not like posting on it. But then sometimes I like feel bad where I'm like, well, I'm a non-Black POC. So should I be like saying something to like get that out there to like try and promote unity within POC in general? and then I just like feel tired sometimes or I just like don't want to do it but then I feel bad I'm like well should I but yeah Yeah. white people have just really taken over social media and I don't like what it's been yeah yeah I mean like coming from like a um a black person's perspective I I just tend to post things that I want my fellow uh people of color black people to just see like I, I try to spread like a lot more positivity instead of the negativity because 
Um, I just remember the white people worsting like a uh, graphic to watch. It's like another dead black person. Like you, you're watching another murder and seeing a black person being murdered as a black person just makes me really think about like, that could be me. That could be my dad. That could be my brother, anyone in my family or anyone I know. And I'm literally watching a person that looks like me being murdered just in front of me. And that is, it's not good for anyone. It's not good for mental health. It's not good for a black people to watch their own heritage being killed in front of them. And so I think social media in a way it's showed, it's showing that everything that's going on, everything that's not being shown on the news and everything that's not being shown on public broadcasting, it's showing you directly straight from somebody's phone. And I think that information is very vital, but at the same time, it can be destructive in a way, you know? And so I think we just need to be a little bit more careful in how we, and especially with white people, um, be more conscious of what you're posting, you know, because it has effects on so many different people. And that's the main thing why I kind of stayed off social media for a while and then went back on it just to be like, all right, I'm feeling like I can do a little bit more now. And then instead of doing like that little trend activist, like if you're going to really be an activist, then you need to consistently be posting. I don't like, you know, when all the black, the black screens, you know, I just remember seeing that. And then like a couple weeks later, I checked on those same people don't see the screens anymore well what happens like you know so there's just this whole thing with social media um but yeah so i totally what Mm y'all were saying for sure yeah social media can be good i think people just need to like you said be more conscious of it i guess in my opinion my opinion i think it's just more important for people to educate themselves and talk to other people and like really speak out when something's happening because that's like really going to test you like if in class if a racist comment is made or microaggression like if you speak up and say something you know that's like a test of character and your part especially if you want to be actively anti-racist and so social media for me it's not like I don't think it should be seen as like a validation for others as like an ally um but rather I guess kind of like a supplement or a tool to that you know I think people should just really do it at home and like have these conversations because I know I like swear to god I know there's these white boys who probably aren't talking about these things because they don't want to acknowledge that they're just like sitting in their privilege and then they'll like hang out with their boys the next day while everyone on social media is like ranting and I know there's probably like white girls too who are like oh I really want to post this picture but I kind of have to wait till this is over (laughs) <laughs> and their friends are like, okay, yeah, just wait. Like, I just know there's people out there who don't want to have that, like, uncomfortable talk with friends and families and be like, yes, I am white. I have this privilege. Like, yeah, oh, I don't have white privilege. Like, my life is hard. I have all these things. Or, But, yeah, I just yeah. know there's people who don't want to have that conversation. It's and just, they're, like, ignoring it on social media and in real life, too. Yeah. I just think, like, it it really sucks to see sometimes, I don't know, I have very mixed feelings about this, so I'm not trying to, like, like, I'm still figuring it out, I'm not trying to act like I'm coming at this with, like, complete knowledge of the situation, like, whatever, that's not what I'm trying to do, but I think it's just, it, 
makes me feel some type of way when I see people who have done things to like personally harm me or other people of color that I know. And again, like coming at this from a privileged perspective. So I'm not even, I'm probably not even aware of the things that have been said to people of color less privileged than myself. But it's like, I'm seeing that you're posting this and telling other people how to act when you haven't corrected the harm that you've caused in your personal life to me. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, it, it doesn't like feel great to see you trying to teach other people how to act when you haven't repaired that harm with me or with other people of color. And it's really making me think a lot about Lincoln's cancel culture and like just the perfectionism that runs so deeply in our activism. And I see it in myself too. Like I think when I was, when I was thinking about doing this podcast, if I'm really honest with myself, I was like, at first I was really hesitant to do it. Cause I was like, what if I canceled? Like, what if I say the like quote unquote wrong thing, you know? And I realized I was like, hold on, like take a step back, reflect on what's happening. This is very similar to white people who don't speak up because they're scared of being called racist. And at the end of the day, you can't prioritize your own fear of that over showing up. And I'm not at all implying that you should be coming at this from like an uneducated perspective and just like causing harm left and right. But the thing is, is like, this isn't something that you can perfect. And I think including for myself, it's a lot more comfortable to think about this as like a checklist of things to do. And we're conditioned to think about it as something that we can perfect. But I realized, and Miss Best like helped me think about this, that like, if this is really something that is continual and ongoing and like a lifetime's work, you're never going to be at the point where you've perfected it. And when you can like rest in the knowledge that you're never going to say the quote unquote wrong thing. So if you're always waiting for that day, you're never going to show up. You know, it's like, you don't have to show up perfectly. You just have to be there. And I think on social media, I'm really seeing a lot of white people and I'm kind of figuring out where non-black POCs fit into this too, but like canceling other white people and like just trashing on them when they do something wrong. And this doesn't apply, like obviously like marginalized people, black people in this conversation, like, you know, if you're going to cancel someone, like you're the one that is having harm done to you. But for white people, you can't prioritize expressing your own anger and canceling someone over actually trying to engage and having that productive conversation. Because if you're doing that, if you're just canceling people, you're allowing yourself to express your anger and get that out. But that's not going to lead to the most productive conversation. You're not bringing that person into the work. So I think we need to start shifting our idea of what it means to actually hold somebody accountable. And that if we're always worrying about saying the wrong thing, understand that you're going to mess up. And that if you're coming at this from a white perspective, you haven't come at the place where you've arrived and you know everything and you can tell other white people how to act. You have to be humble about it and understand you can't go around canceling other people when they mess up because you're going to mess up too. And you just have to be willing to be held accountable and take responsibility for the harm that you cause, which is very hard to do in a perfectionist culture. Yeah, I remember Liam said, like, on the first episode, where he, he said he would, like, never call a white person or, like, say to them, you're ignorant, because right away, that's just gonna, like, put them off from the conversation. They'll be like, okay, well, now I can't talk about race, because now everyone's gonna think I'm racist or whatever, and I think a lot of people do have that same fear. They're like, oh, well, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but mm-hmm. this is something we're always actively learning. Things are go- going to change new things are going to come up and we're going to think about it. You know, it's history is going to reveal more of itself and we're going to learn about it. You can't really like be perfect. I just think you have to talk about it. And I even learn more about myself and other people when I do these podcasts, which is why I like doing it because I like having these conversations and I don't have enough of them. I feel like 
living in Portland. So yeah, honestly, the whole point is, you know, this conversation is just natural off the top of the head and whatever is said is said and people are learning along the way, whether they're in the podcast or listening. So yeah, definitely understand that. Something really interesting I did see on Instagram though, which kind of ties back into what Emily was saying was there was this post that was talking about how for white people specifically, it's like not productive or not beneficial for you to be blocking your racist friends or people that you know, because you have the privilege to block out that racism and that immediate racism within your own family or all of these things. Like you have the option to ignore it and you have the option to not be able to not have to interrupt that. And you're only making that clearer by blocking people. Like, of course, block people for your own like safety, your own mental health and things like that. But like as white people, it is like their responsibility to be holding their white counterparts accountable for their actions. And by just like completely blocking them, canceling them, cutting them off, like they're no longer going to have someone to keep them in check. So they're just going to continuously do more harm to like black people of color and people of color as a whole. Yeah, and I think, like, canceling people, it comes from such a, like, self-righteous place in which, like, we've been, we've been conditioned to think that, like, you have to know everything about racism, and it's something that you can perfect, really, instead of something that's just, like, a work, it's work that we're trying to do every day, um, and so it comes from this fear of being pointed out as, like, oh, like, maybe you don't know everything, so it's easier to point to other white people who are, who are in the middle of this process and be, like, oh, I know more than them, so, like, let's cancel them, and it, makes you more comfortable with the fact that you're still doing the learning too. Um, but I think what I've really been trying to think about is like then where non-black POCs fit into this because usually in conversations about race, I can disengage and be like, I'm really tired. This is not my job. It's time for a white person to step in. But in this conversation, it is my job and the job of non-black POCs to step in and have those conversations because if you're not doing it, a black person down the line is going to have to. And so I think it's really important to also for me to kind of include myself in that and think about the ways in which I shouldn't be disengaging, but I just haven't quite figured out where the line is of being able mm -hmm. to honor your own feelings and the fact that coming at this as a non-white person, you're still going to have feelings that are triggering your own racial trauma and being able to honor that without fully disengaging. Like, I just don't know what the line is because if like you're prioritizing your own anger and, and canceling people too, how much of that is you being able to disengage from a point of privilege the way that white people can you know yeah and also you want to be able to honor your own feelings and understand mm -hmm. that you're not white either and it's just like it's such a hot mess yeah it's like well i don't have to educate white people about how race and racism works but then when a white person says something pretty racist about black people or indigenous people or whatever then you're like okay well now i feel called to like say something yeah and, and you know yeah, think, yeah. i think difference is that it's not you being hurt you know so you gotta you gotta step up mm -hmm. you know because the the emotional harm obviously it'll impact you because racism is connected to anti-blackness but it's not directly you on the line and you gotta step yeah. up yeah. emotional toll mm -hmm. will be less for you but I think I just was thinking that it was selfish to be able to also take time to think about how things are impacting you but if you don't you're gonna burn out you know like you have to mm -hmm. it just can't be used as a way to shy away from thinking about your privilege and actually doing the work too. It's just those things have to coexist instead of negating each other. If anyone has, I guess, last minute comments or I guess whether it's advice you have for non-Black POCs or 
POCs in general listening and anything you would advise them, I guess, right now to look into anti-Blackness, whether it's historically by reading about where they're from or their identity, talking with their friends. I know we've already mentioned quite a bit about that, but if there's any last remarks, it could be about anything. Um, I mean, any, I mean, something I would just say, and I think many people have said, is just listen to the experiences that Black people are, or have been facing for many centuries. I mean, it, it really just, you need to take the time just to learn and just really sit in discomfort. Because that's, that's the way white people can actually, I mean, they won't understand fully because they'll never understand or the experiences of being Black, but you'll at least stand with them. And, you know, that's like true allyship is just by listening and, and you know, I, I mean, that's really, and just doing your research and not taking up so much space. And I, I mean, that's the main thing I would just say. Well, this is more directed towards white people. And I would think, I'm like trying to think of a tip for non-Black people of color. But I think one really important thing is, is that you don't get to like claim the term and as an ally, you have to be gifted that to that that by a person of color or by a community of color. You don't just get to take that because you posted one thing on Instagram. And like for the white people that are going to the protests and things like that, like I applaud you and I want you to stand in solidarity with people. But like it's also understanding that you are literally there as a shield for black people. And that's what's going to make you a true ally. You don't just get to claim that term mm -hmm. for yourself. But thank you for joining me today. I really liked it. Everyone said really great things. It had me stumbling myself because I was shook. I was like, crap, I'm really bad at talking. <laughs>